I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 7. And like I said, if anybody needs a Bible, we have a Bible here, you just raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to take the Bible home, and it'll be our gift to you if anybody needs one. 2 Kings chapter 7. I started out during the prayer time talking about 2020, and I said that 2020 proved to be a year uh, of of significant trial for many people, a year of testing for those who identify as born-again Bible-believing Christians and churches. And there's no indication, you should know for sure, right, there's no indication at all that the societal shifts, the cultural shifts, the morality, even the virus is going to stop anytime soon. As a matter of fact, I was thinking just the other day, right, they announced, oh, a new strand in the U.K. is found. It's like when you, when you think you could just, like, ease up a little, there is another prompting of fear that comes out. But what does God do with our trials and testings? We're going to take a look at a text today that gives us four key principles that tells us what God does during trials and testings for believers. And I want to share something with you that I hope you know already, and if you don't, well then, here it is. Nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Nothing. Right? God will use this virus. God will use the changes in our society. God will use the, the, the corona situation for his glory and for his good. As a matter of fact, he's already doing that today. One of the things that's happening is, is that you're starting to see churches shift, right? The, 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 the ones that are following and hungry for the word of God are remaining steadfast, and perhaps some of those that weren't are, are kind of drifting away and doing some of the other, um, you know, going in other directions. So God will use everything for his glory. I I came across this statement from A.W. Tozer. I really want you to to listen to this. It says, when a Christian faces a difficult or an extreme trial or temptation, he is tempted to throw in the towel and say, God, it's no use. I'm just not good. You obviously don't want me, so I'm finished. All the while, he forgets that God wants to teach us through these trials and temptations that self-trust is dangerous. Man, oh man, how many times have you been in that place? God, I can't do this anymore. God, I, I can't take this anymore. Lord, how much more do you want me to endure? How much more do you want me to continue to go forward? Lord, I'm done. Isn't that the case? So many times we get to that place where, Lord, I'm done. I'm finished. But God is the one who works through the trial. And so trials, testings, temptations, these aren't things that should really rock us. Now, I just want to say something, and I want to preface this at the very beginning. I don't know what your trial was this year. I don't know what you've been through. I do know in talking to all of you that some have had a very rough years, and and some suffer more than others. I I know that. 
So for those of you that may be suffering with physical infirmity or illness, those of you that may be suffering on the job, those that may have gone through economic hardships related to you know, the economic, economic slowdown, whatever it is, I want to qualify this. I am not making light of your suffering. And I don't also want to be trite or pat to just say, okay, well, look, this is all you have to do and you're going to be fine. But I do want everyone to know because it is appointed to all of God's people to suffer. All of God's people to suffer. We just suffer in different ways. But I want you to know that there are principles contained in the Word of God whereby we could apply these principles and find our contentment in God in the midst of trial. So I'm not going to tell you, you know, apply these four principles or your trials are going to go away. Apply these four principles and you'll skate right through your trial. la di da di da You think Paul, when Paul was being whipped, when Paul was being beaten, when they dragged him out of Ephesus and they stoned him and they left him there for dead, do you think that Paul was, you know, hey, no big deal, I'm suffering for Jesus? No. There was real pain. There was real hurt. There was real sense of betrayal when Paul writes to the Corinthians and the Corinthians are saying, you're not a real apostle. That sense of betrayal was real. But Paul endured and the great Christians endure because their hope and their security is found in God. That's it. That's it. I said something last week and I, I, I don't know if I did a good job explaining this, but I said something last week. Everything will be reconciled in Christ. Every disappointment, every hurt, every betrayal, every physical illness, everything that we have endured, everything that we have suffered here on earth will be totally reconciled in Christ when we see His glorious face. And it will be made as nothing. As nothing. As a matter of fact, on that great day, we will forget it all. But what we need to do now as believers, as we are in here, as we are on earth, what we need to do now is to push ourselves and to continue to go forward. But going forward in the Spirit, going forward with God, and not counting on our own strength to see us through. In 2 Kings chapter 7, we see the story of Israel who is besieged by the Arameans and the Assyrians. They had laid siege to the city. And so bad was the starvation of the people that the people started to resort to eating donkeys and eating things that were unclean. There's even talk about you know, one, one person going to the prophet and saying, you know, she wants to eat my son. It was desperate hour. They were resorting to cannibalism. Food was scarce. And of course, when those situations occur, people always seek to profiteer. And the prophet Elisha had prophesied that the Lord God Himself would deliver the city. The Lord God Himself would deliver the city. And so in our text, we're going to see something. We're going to see that when we are in dire straits, 
That it is the Lord God Himself who will come to our rescue. That it is the Lord God Himself that will be our strength. That it is the Lord God Himself that will bring about victory. And we will see these four key principles. I'll lay them out and we'll go through them. The first one is that God uses the least likely of people for His glory. God uses the least likely of His people for His glory. The second one is that God delivers alone. The third one is God brings victory alone. And the fourth one is when all these things come together, God compels us to tell of His victory. Let's take a look at the text. I'll read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll jump into the text. Then Elisha said, The word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in twilight and left their tents, their horses, their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid uh, them. And then they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And then they said to one another, we are not doing right. The day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So here we see that they are surrounded. They're surrounded by a vast army. And rather than do a frontal assault and just lay siege to the city, this army, uh, this army had determined to lay siege and to starve them out. And it was desperate time. And here we see in this first trial that God uses the least likely of men. Now we saw in the beginning in verse 1, the prophet Elisha. And if you remember, Elijah was the prophet before. He laid his mantle on Elisha. And Elisha asked, may I have a double portion of your, of your spirit? And Elisha is now the prophet in Israel. And he tells him, hey, all this stuff that you're selling, top-notch dollar for food, I'll tell you what, tomorrow it's going to be sold for a penny. And as a matter of fact, if you take a look at verse 2, um, the royal officer whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of, of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? 
Basically, he mocked and he said, hey, if God is going to somehow open a window, you know, this is not going to believe. He, he mocked him in his unbelief. But then God gathered bizarre people for his glory. Four lepers. Now, these were four men that, were, that suffered from the disease of leprosy. And leprosy during this time was an insidious disease that eats away at your flesh and your nerves. Actually, people with leprosy, you can actually, their, their nerves and their flesh would get so dis- decayed that if you touch one of their fingers, literally the finger would fall out. There are stories in India of people who have leprosy that in the middle of the night had their foot eaten away by rats because they had no feeling in their foot and their, and their skin had so decayed. And in Israel, leprosy was considered not only just, you know, in a health sense, unclean, but it was considered ceremoniously unclean. They needed to be outside the city. Not merely for the contamination that they bring and the spread, but they needed to be outside the city because they were considered ceremoniously. They were considered spiritually unclean. Now, if you take a look at the narrative here, you would think that God would be able to use some really, really healthy people to be able to come together and and provide this solution. But who does God use? He uses four men that are leprous. They're outside the camp. They're not in the main populace. They were shunned. As a matter of fact, when lepers would walk through and if somebody was coming on the opposite road, it was required of them that they shout out that they were lepers. They would have to literally shout out, unclean, unclean, so that the people would stay away. Outcasts from society. Spiritual outcasts from society. And I often liken that to you and me prior to coming to faith in Christ. We were spiritually unclean. We were unclean in our sin. I I, I know many people won't admit it, but I believe that there is a mindset that, well, I came to Christ, but I really wasn't a bad guy. Yes, you were in the eyes of God. You were a violator of God's law. You transgressed against God's law. You showed no regard for the moral law of God. You walked in rebelliousness. You walked in enmity against Christ. And yet God takes these four unclean vessels and He is going to use them to declare the glorious victory that He Himself brought forth. These lepers knew they were in a desperate situation. You see in the text, in the first three verses, hey, we're out. first of all, they're outside the city. Right? So they say, if we go in the city, we're definitely going to die. There's no food there. There's no nourishment. Plus, you have to dodge everybody else that's going to be casting stones at you. And so they're in a, they're in a, a situation where they're hemmed in. They go, well, if we go in there, we're going to die. If we go to Kappa, Arameans, well, we might get some food, but we might die. If we stay here, we're definitely going to die. So let's go to Kappa, the Arameans. And if we die, we die. That's what they're saying. They recognize their desperate situation. But they did something. They took action. They took 
action. Oh, so many people, right, when they find themselves in a situation, a lot of times they can give you excruciating detail about how miserable their situation is, how nobody gets it, how nobody understands, but they don't take action. I was sharing with somebody recently, I said one of the, one of the most adverse effects that the pandemic has had on the church is this, is that, and not only just the pandemic, but everything about 2020, quite frankly, the riots and everything else we saw. One of the adverse effects is that in the church, a lot of people say, oh, did you see that? So terrible. Oh, look at what's happening in society. It's so terrible. Oh, the virus, it's so terrible. Oh, they killed so many people. It's so terrible. Look at how the conventions are changing in our society. Look at the depravity in our society. It's so terrible. But they never enter the fight. They never make a decision. If I look at anything within 2021, if the Lord has impressed anything upon my heart regarding 2021 is it's time for believers to get into the fight and it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, if you are in Christ, you can engage and we could draw the sword of the Spirit and we can enter the fray. We can no longer be a church that could be passive. We can no longer be a church saying, well, I'm expecting this brother to do it or this sister to do that. All of us play a game in the kingdom of God. All of us must enter into the battle. We cannot stay in the rear any longer. There is a great harvest out there of souls that need to be brought into the kingdom of God and God by His deliberate design has chosen mere mortals, sinners like you and me, frail people who have a terrible past or maybe have a past that's ungodly, but He has chosen us as He caused us to be born again. Enter in, enter into the battle. A lot of churches are full of a lot of people that don't do anything. And they post, they got the best websites, they got the best everything. Oh Lord, God would have that each and every one of us would contend and battle for souls. You know, great sin that's come upon the church is, you know, when we talk about, well, I shared the gospel with that person, they know. And we do it kind of like, hey, I'm done. Charles Spurgeon, I'll paraphrase it, I don't remember the exact quote, but Spurgeon makes this statement. He says, let us beg for men and women's souls. Let us implore for men and women's souls. Let us must have conversion in this place or let us not be heard of again. And should they ignore us? And should they mock us? And should they choose not to come? Then let our arms be wrapped around their feet as they go into eternity lost. God uses ordinary, the least likely people. And you know who they are? You and me. I walked in this morning as I came in here. Janet probably thought I was nuts, and Ricky probably thought I was nuts because I was shouting hallelujahs and everything else. But I walked in this morning, and as I stepped onto the little wood ramp there, with the first step I said, oh, good Lord, what an honor to preach the Word of God. What an honor to come into the house of God. 
Do you feel that? That it's an honor to come into the household of God. It is an honor to be among God's people. It doesn't matter how big. It doesn't matter how small. It doesn't matter where you meet. If you're meeting in a barn, if you're meeting under a tree, if you're meeting in someone's house, or if you're meeting in the greatest, grandest cathedral ever built. It is an honor to come before God on the Lord's day and to worship Him. And so we see these four unlikely people. And I think about that, how Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You may know this verse by heart. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you may be able to endure. You know, when we go through trials, we go through testings, it's common to all men. But we have an advantage. God is able. And God is faithful to not allow you to be tested beyond what you can endure. What kind of people would we be if we were never tested by God? What kind of warriors would we be if we never dressed and rehearsed for battle? What kind of men and women, what what victories of God would we be able to exclaim to the unbeliever and we would be able to say to the world, say, my God delivered me in this manner. God allows these things in our life. That the temptations we face are common to all men, to His children. God provides a way of escape And that in our endurance, we glorify God. James tells us, knowing, James um, 1.3, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it do? It produces endurance. And you might be saying, Pastor, I wish that God didn't give me so much endurance. But God is working in you, through you, for the glory of His name. God uses the least likely for His glory. Look at the second point. God delivers alone. Look at verses 6 and 7. For the Lord it caused the army of the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots, the sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose, fled in the twilight, and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. Notice that without kings, without nobles, without a mighty army, without the city observing, without the interaction of humans, God did indeed deliver. God had already delivered. It was done before the lepers even arrived at the camp. God delivered alone. God did it supernaturally. God did it miraculously. Oh, church, please, don't ever grow tired. Don't ever think that God does not do the supernatural today. He does. And many of our deliverances are already done. 
in many of our trials, God in His providence has already delivered. It's already done before we even know it. The prophet Isaiah states in the glorious, glorious 43rd chapter, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there's no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declare the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Listen, truly, honestly, this is the God we serve. And we should come back to the remembrance of His awesomeness. Come back to the remembrance of His power. Come back to the remembrance of His authority. Come back to the remembrance of who He is. He is God Almighty. And here, with no one bearing witness, God had delivered. Doesn't it sound preposterous? That you have this mighty army surrounding, and then God caused them to hear the sound of horses and chariots and marching, marching men and clanging you know, spears and, and, and everything else to the point that they got terrified and they ran away. Now this isn't like the instance of a tree falling in the wilderness and nobody's around to hear it doesn't make a sound. God was working something greater for His glory, but the point is this, God indeed did it. You think the people in the city were saying, oh, I know how this is going to end. See, God's going to destroy the armies that are out there. They're going to hear the sign of, uh, sound of a mighty army and, and they're going to do all this other different thing and then we're going to go out there, we're going to eat and our hearts are going to be full. No. They in the city were in dire straits. They in the city were resorting to things which were unholy. They were wondering not only where their next meal was going to come from, but they were wondering where their next breath was going to come from. So to those in the midst of the trial, it's dire. And I submit something to you. For those of us that are in the midst of the trial, it could be dire. And you could be at your wit's end. And you could be hard-pressed. But God does indeed deliver His people. And God does what we cannot do for ourselves. And God does invoke the supernatural because He is supernatural. And the power of the, sp uh, the Spirit has the ability to transcend all that we ask or all that we think. When God delivers, there's no more threat. When God delivers, there's overabundance. When God delivers, He becomes our very satisfaction. And let me add one other thing. When God delivers, He compels us to tell of it. Let's look at the next thing. God brings victory alone, verse 8. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank 
and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and carried from there also. And they went and hid them. God's victory was delivered alone. And it came without armies. It came without battles. It came without most not knowing it. It came supernaturally. An enemy totally defeated. Supernaturally. By the power and the authority of God. And as I shared, it's my personal belief that many professing Christians, I'm not sure if we all fully believe that God is capable in handling their situation completely by Himself. And that's when faith is invoked. When you're making your cry out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't know if I could go further another day. Lord, I don't know if I can continue down this path. Lord, I don't know how long the money's going to last. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it. When we offer up and we believe God, like Abraham believed God. What does Paul say, Abraham believed God? It says in Romans 4.16, in hope against hope he believed. It goes on to say that he considered his own body As good as dead, he was 99 years old. He had been told for years he was going to be the the father of a a nation and he's going to have his descendants are going to be as innumerable as the sands of the seas. And it says he considered his own body now as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong, knowing that God is the only one who could call into being that which does not exist. We believe that. We believe in the God who could call into being that which does not exist. Or we are the people that say, well, God doesn't do that anymore. Let me, let me give you an admonition and warning. Be careful about putting God in a box, please. Be careful about saying God only does this. He only works this way. Our God is not dependent upon us. His ways aren't our ways. We cannot figure out entirety the mind of God. We only know the very, very little that He's revealed to us in this Word. But God is so much greater. God is so much vaster. God is so much more powerful than we can even wrap our mortal minds around. And so that is the God in whom we've placed our faith and trust. Think about it for a moment. If you call yourself a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have entrusted your eternal soul. You have entrusted yourself to the fact that you will not face the wrath of God to God Almighty who could do it. Yet in the ordinary circumstances and problems of life, we sometimes have difficulties in trusting ourselves to God. What an awesome God we serve. Psalm 20, verses 5 through 7 say this, We will sing for joy over our victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. The Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some boast in chariots, some in horses. 
but we will boast in the Lord our God. Something that very, very sad happened in November. Many people put their, their hope in a particular party. They put their hope in a particular person. Forgetting that it is God who sits on the throne. And we don't trust in horses. We don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in weaponry. We don't trust in money. We don't trust in our government. Our faith and our trust can only be in the Lord God Almighty. Our hope of believers is not in other people or processes. Victory is accomplished by God and God alone that God indeed would receive the glory. Proverbs 21.31 says this, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. But in order to gain victory, the people had to go forth. See, in order to gain a victory, God chose those four unlikely leprous men, put them in the situation where they took action and went forth and discovered the victory of God. They went forth. Had they been passive, they would not have known the victory of God. And we too, when we are in our trials, when we are in our circumstances, we too need to step forward in faith, believing God. We cannot be shocked. We cannot be overwhelmed into inactivity. May I submit something to you? That is indeed the ploy of the enemy. The ploy of the enemy is that we would be shocked into inactivity. Listen, had they not gone, gone forward, they would not have been able to plunder the enemy's camp. They would not have been able to take the enemy's supplies. They would not have been able to eat of the enemy's provision. Whose provision? The enemy. God gave it over to them. The ones that threatened them now became the source of substance. For them and worst of all they would not have known of the delivering hand of God many times we are in trials many times we are in testings so that we would know the delivering power of God if you look down a little further in verse 15 and 16 speaking of the total victory and it said, and they went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. And so the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. And then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. You see what happened? When word finally got back to the besieged city and they went out to the camp, 
the whole way to the Jordan, that army was shedding its clothes. It was shedding anything. They could not run fast enough. It's kind of like 1991 in the Gulf War when we, when we invaded and, and, and you saw the Iraqi soldiers were littering their clothes all over the place and they were discarding their clothes and they did that in 2003 as well. They couldn't surrender fast enough. Here the Arameans hearing the sound of this battle thinking their life is in jeopardy by God's providential design. Flee! And as they flee, they shed everything that could be shed and it falls into the hands of God's people. And God had indeed provided through His victory. The last point here, God compels to tell of His victories. Look at verse 9. Now get the scene. These lepers who are usually outcasts are in an army camp that's completely vacant, going from tent to tent, eating and drinking, picking up silver and gold, hiding that they're in wealth now, they're in overabundance, they're stuffing their faces, right? They're having a jolly old time. What else could be wrong? Notice verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. And if we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Let me share something with you. There is a sin of silence. There is a sin of silence. There is a sin when we don't speak when we should speak. There is a sin when we hold all the blessings of God and we hoard them close to our chest, but, but we don't share them with those that are in need. Notice that these four lepers, in the midst of their celebration, in the midst of their abundance, all of a sudden it dawns upon them, wait, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. What were they thinking? They were thinking of their fellow citizens back in the city, those who were starving to death, those that did not know about the victory that God had delivered. that sound familiar? How many people are out there that don't know of the victory that God has delivered them from sin? How many people in our own lives, friends, family, neighbors, whatever they are, co-workers or whatever, have not heard the story of the Gospel? And we who are the believers, we who are in the camp now, we who have overabundance, we who have everything that God has provided for us, we who are saved, redeemed, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we who have this now don't tell. There is a sin of silence. These lepers realize this. In one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73. It's ironic because this psalm has been sustaining me through my tribulations. The psalmist says this, But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Note that I may tell of all His works. We must tell.
sin of silence. Because in God's delivering from temptation, when God's delivering from trial, from God's deliverance of testing, He not only does it just to say, oh, I, I, I love you, but He does that that He would be glorified. And so when we talk to brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to do it in a moment. We're going to have a testimony time and, and we give you an opportunity to give a testimony for the great things that God has done in our life. But in those moments of time, we have the opportunity to tell the world, to tell unbelievers, let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you how God delivered me from these circumstances. So many of God's people will attempt to hoard the blessings of God without declaring and praising God from whom all blessings flow. If we are the people of God, then we are the people who rejoice in God. We are the people that boast in God. I don't mean in a braggadocious way. I mean that we declare the glories and the excellencies of God. Second Peter, what is it? First Peter? Second. First Peter 2 says that you're a royal nation, a holy priesthood. What for? To declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what the church is, that's what Christians are for. To declare. And these lepers were compelled to tell their fellow citizens from where, from whom their deliverance and their blessings came from. Let me share something. And they risked all to tell them. For them to go back into the city and attempt to enter the city meant they could have been stoned. They risked everything to go back to them and tell them, and so do we. And I'm going to share something else. When they went to tell them, they didn't believe them. Ring a bell? How many times we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're mocked and we're laughed at and people don't believe us and, and, and you know they come up with every objection under the sun? But in the kingdom of God, silence is not golden. That's the kingdom of this world. Let us not be a people that hoard the blessings of God, but not declare and give God the rightful glory that He so deserves. Psalm 71, verses 16 through 18 say this, I will come with mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of Thy righteousness, Thine alone, O God. Thou hast taught me from my youth, and I still declare Thy wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare thy strength to this generation, thy power to all who are to come. That should be our heart. Even from my youth, I remember from my youth, I just have a, just a quick sidebar, but a, a, a friend of mine that I grew up with, um, I saw on an email that his 37-year-old daughter had passed away from uh, metastatic breast cancer. And in 40 years, I probably talked to him maybe half a dozen times. We're not, I can't say we're really close. But I was sitting at home one night, I decided to call him. And I said, you know, offer my condolences. 
And, and, and Steve was uh, um, a gentleman in my neighborhood who was a kind of hippie-ish, pothead, did all kinds of drugs and everything. Everybody in my neighborhood were super-duper druggies back, day, back then in Brooklyn. But anyway, one day he shows up in the park that we all hung out with, and he starts, he's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about all this. And I'm going, what? I'm a kid. I'm, I think I'm 15 years old, right? And, and, and I'm a kid, and I hear him talking about it. So I said, so anyway, so we were talking on the phone, and I said to him, Steve, who would think that two kids from Coney Island, you know, 40 years later, would be still be talking and having a conversation? He goes, he goes, you know what? I always remember the night I was in the park, and I was talking to your friend Jeff, who was my best friend at the time. He says, I was talking to your friend Jeff, and I was telling him about Jesus, anything. I knew nothing. I knew nothing at all. He said, and you said to me, hey, Steve, let's take a walk. And so we walk. He says, you remember that? I go, I do. I do remember that. And he says, we walked around the whole block, and you said to me, Steve, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he, he rose again on the third day? He said, you presented the, he said, you shared the gospel with me, and I told you that I believe. He said, and you took me up to your house to meet your dad. And he goes, and your dad directed, now he's, he's Jewish. He said, and your dad had a contact at a messianic mission in Coney Island, connected me to the messianic mission. He goes, and then I got discipled, and then he went away to Moody Bible Institute, and he evangelized to the Jews and everything else. And I said to him, I remembered the whole story clear as a bell. And I said, Steve, you know I wasn't a Christian at that time. I said, but I knew enough about the gospel. Plus, you freaked me out as a Jewish guy, as a druggie, you know, over here talking to me about Jesus. And I thought about it when I hung up the phone. I said, Lord, you use the power of the gospel, even in me as an unbeliever, to change a man's life. And I thought about it. I said, how great is the Lord that he uses even in spite of us. That God can take the least likely of all of us, whether it's shyness, whether we feel ill-equipped, whether we are, have a sordid past. If we are in Christ, all of that has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness and remembered no more by God, but God can use all of us for the glory of His name, for the glories of Christ. Yes, when God delivers, He compels us to tell. Listen, I'll make it real simple. Whatever your circumstance, maybe some of your secular friends, your unbelieving friends don't know that you're going through, know that you're going through a particular thing. And now it's been resolved and it's been brought about by God. Here's something real simple. When you're telling them and they ask you, whatever happened to blah, 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 blah. Let me share with you what God has done for me. There it is. There's the word. Let me share with you what God has done for me. Right away, you're pointing to the Lord. You're pointing to God to be your solution, your Savior. And it may produce the question that says, 
What do you mean God did for you? And you know what that's called? A divine appointment. The door has been opened for the glory of the Gospel. So you might be saying, what, is this, what does this mean for me? We've seen four important principles here in this text. God uses the least likely. God delivers alone. God brings victory alone. God compels to tell of His victory. Many of us have faced and are facing serious trials and temptations in our lives right now. Many times the trial or the temptations causes us to shrink back, doesn't it? Become immobilized, to become paralyzed. As Tozer stated from the beginning, causes us to say, oh God, I failed. I guess you're not interested in me. And it keeps us from trusting completely in the awesome power of our God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. We fall back from our... We know better. That's what happens. We distrust God and then we trust ourselves. And that's the very thing that the trial or the testing is designing to get us free from. Get away from the self-trust and entrust yourself completely to God. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 12? The thorn in the flesh passage. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. How is power perfected? Power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me tell you, out of everybody here, I'm probably the most stubborn person you ever met. And God has been chipping away at that stubbornness and that confidence for years now. And I have learned also, and many times, when it's the darkest, that that is the verge, I am on the verge of God doing something mighty and something great. D.L. Moody makes this statement, we, we must have the Spirit of God resting upon us and then we will have something that gives victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. Something that gives victory over our tempers, over our conceits, and over every other evil. He goes on to say, let it be God's glory and not our own that we seek. And when we get to that point, how speedily the Lord will bless us for His good. God uses the trial of our life to draw us closer to Him so that we would know His delivering power and His victory over circumstances. It's in these instances that we draw out faith to His delivering power. It's in these instances that we draw out our faith and to our delivering power. While we were setting up this morning, Ricky was playing a song on the audio system, and it's an old hymn, and it says, Where shall I go but to the Lord? Let me submit something to you. Where do we go? 
In your trial, in your weakness, where do you go? In your testing, in your temptation, where do you go? Where else can you go but to the Lord? And when God delivers, as God has done in many lives, then it is incumbent upon us to declare to all the people everywhere, believers, unbelievers alike, how God delivered us from our circumstances so that God will get all of the glory. Our power, the power of Christ, is perfected in our weakness. So church, we need to pray, and I'm going to ask the church to pray in one moment, but I have directed this message today to those who call themselves Christians, born-again, Bible-believing Christians. And if that's not you, we ask you to repent of your sins, to turn away from your sins, and entrust yourself completely to Christ, and be born again today. If the Spirit of God is moving upon your heart, if you want to know how you can be right with God, then when you die, you will see the Lord, not in judgment, but in love. And you will come and see the goodness of God. If that's you and you have questions about it, come see me after church immediately. Come see me after church. I'd love to share with you and declare the wondrous deliverance and victory of God that He has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. But to the believers, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to become a praying church. That is something that believers and churches are not doing enough of. So listen to me. I, I want to be crystal clear with this. I'm not playing on your sympathies. I am not praying on your felt needs. I think you know me by now. But there are times when we need to corporately come together and pray. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a testing right now, and you need the power of God to bring about victory, will you tell others what God has done for you? If you're going through a trial, I want to be clear with this. It's not antics. I want you just to stand so we could pray. And if you are next to somebody who's standing, will you pray for that person when we go for the Lord in prayer? Just stand so that I know who to pray for. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a, a circumstance in your life and you're saying, Pastor, church, pray for me. The Bible tells us that you know, we are to bear one another's burdens. The, the, the church is. We are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. All I'm asking you to do is stand up so we know. Is there anybody before we close and transition our service? Brother Ricky, amen. Somebody would pray for... Stand, stay standing, Ricky. Stay standing. Sister Janet, is there anybody else? Boom. Brother Larry, amen. We're not asking you to be saved. We're not asking you to walk an aisle. All we're saying is by standing, you identify yourself, pray for me so that the church can see and people could be mindful to pray for one another. Is there anybody else? We won't prolong anybody else before we go to Lord in prayer. Amen. So 
remember these that are standing. And now as we go to the Lord in prayer, let's pray. Father, we come before you, almighty God. Father, it is you who spoke the word. It is you who brings our delivery. It is you, Lord, who guarantees our victory. It is you, Lord, that use the least likely, and it is you, Father, who transcends all the physical limitations of this world so that you would be glorified through your people. Father, we pray for those who had the boldness to say, pray for me. I'm going through a rough patch right now. And Lord, you know what their trial is. You know what their testing is. And we pray that, oh God, you would encourage their hearts. We pray that, Father, Lord God, you would awaken them, that they would put their faith and their confidence in you. We pray that, Father, Lord, you would press upon them, that they would have endurance, and that, Father, Lord God, that when the trial passes, Lord God, that they would be able to confess and they would be able to tell of your goodness and of your workings and of your mercy and of your grace, O God. So, Father, as we gather before you, Lord God, we bless your name. And, Father, Lord, we pray that you would awaken us, that we would become the people of God that you have called us to be, Almighty God. And that Christ may be honored, may Christ may be glorified. Strengthen the hands that are weak, the legs that are feeble, Lord. Straighten our back, Lord. Get us into the battle, Almighty God, that we would glorify and honor you, Lord. It's in Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen. Bless God.